Well, before we get started with the message, I first wanted to do something I'm going to try to do more often, which is to welcome everybody who's watching this online later in the week or month or whenever it might be. Um, over the course of time, I've gotten emails and phone calls from people across the country that are regularly watching and listening to these messages. And if you're ever in town in Lakeville, we'd love for you to stop by and join us. Now, this is, uh, as we've been talking, an amazing day of celebration. And I think there's different things that we can celebrate today. Um, we can celebrate God's faithfulness to his people and to us individually as we think towards the past. It's a day of celebration as we think of God's blessing in the presence. And then also a day of celebration as we think about um, the unknown of the future, but what would seem to be a lot of different opportunities for spreading this message of Jesus, of the gospel, to the people and to the communities in which we live. And this is a day of celebration that got here a little bit later than we had initially thought, right, over the last couple of months? Um, you know there are certain words that are not necessarily curse words or vulgar, but at the same time, families just kind of tell you, like, I don't want to hear that word in our house. Uh, so as an example, um, if you are a um, family that cheers for the purple and gold, the Vikings, like, usually you don't want to hear the word Green Bay Packers or Chicago Bears in your house, unless it's in a derogatory way, right, Kren? No Green Bay Packers. Uh, or if you're someone who's a Ford guy, right? You don't want to hear Chevy. Oh, Ford and Chevy people don't get along. Um, if you're an Android or a Windows person, yeah, that fruit that will go unnamed, that uh, apple, um, you don't want to hear about that. Well, if I have a chance to talk with you over the next few months, and I'll let you know when this time frame ends. There's a word that's not necessarily vulgar or a curse word, but I just don't want to hear it. It's off limits. There are two words. <laughs> when you see me, don't ask about that. When you see me, don't talk about that. I don't care if it's that one or the one at the grocery store. Just don't say those words. You can say car corral. <laughs> you can say automobile rest zone. Um, you can say, I will even go with this. Um, the area formerly known as parking lot is okay. But don't say those words. As many of you know, the, the reason why things got delayed a little bit was because we couldn't get that in when initially we thought, as it's been a really, really rainy spring and our, our topography of our, uh, our site caused some issues and challenges for a rainy spring. Uh, and, um, and so it took a little while. Now, there, there was a day about a week and a half ago, it was a Wednesday, that I got a phone call from Brian as there were um, the trucks for the asphalt trucks were lined up and a few of them were already here. And, and we talked about, you know, what we should do. 
And this was never something we were going to do, but Brian almost, you know, not sarcastically, but in a way that it's like, this, this wouldn't be a good idea, said, well, I suppose we could just put the parking lot or the asphalt on top of what had been saturated ground, but if you do that, it's not going to last very long. If you do that, if you, if you put it over the top, this isn't what he said, these are my words, it's going to look nice, you're going to be able to get in your building a little bit sooner, but then a year from now or less, you're going to have to rip it all out and start over. You know why? Ultimately, because whenever you build something, the foundation needs to be secure. Whenever you build something, you have to have a good foundation. And that, my friends, is our simple first fill-in for this week, that a good plan will always require a good foundation. That's true of the automobile rest area. That's true of marriages. You need a good foundation. It's true of families. It's true in our personal lives. You need to have a good foundation on which you build. It's, uh, it's true of a church. As many of you walked in this morning, I was watching, and immediately, like for me too, your head kind of goes like this in the atrium, and it's kind of surreal to be in here, isn't it? An amazing blessing that we've talked about already. But let me, let me say this. As beautiful as it is, as wonderfully built and designed and put together as it is, as proud as we might be of being able to worship here and now to say, yeah, we're the, we're the church on the hill with this tall cross or whatever, however we're going to say it, I want you to know this is just a tool. This building is just an instrument for something far greater that we're about than being comfortable in a cool place. And that this series is entitled Building North Cross and has nothing to do with architectural plans. And the series has nothing to do with construction, but has everything to do with ministry and with lives and with the gospel. So as we get started today, we're going to talk about God's master plan. We're going to talk about the foundation, the good foundation on which this new beginning of Bethlehem, now North Cross, should and is going to and already has been built. Let me give you some context to the verses we're going to look at. So Jesus is in context towards the end of his three-year public ministry. And as he got closer to the end of his life, as he knew that it would be coming, his death, that is, he was very intentional with telling his closest followers, the 12 disciples, exactly what he felt they needed to know and hear the most. And as they were traveling in an area called Caesarea Philippi, Jesus had a really important question that he wanted to ask his 12. Because if they got this wrong, <laughs> well, there needed to be some remedial training. But if they got this question right, if they got the answer right, they would have the right foundation to now go out and be the leaders of the church. It's from Matthew chapter 16. We'll begin with verse 13. When Jesus came 
to the area in the town called Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? There had been lots of chatter about this Jesus of Nazareth because of the miracles that he did, because of the casting out of demons, because of the the dynamic preacher that he was. People were talking in Israel, all around Israel and Galilee, about Jesus. But the question isn't is, do you know Jesus? The question is, who is Jesus? And still today, my friends, it's not just knowing there was a Jesus that's important. The most important question is this one. Who do you say that he is? Verse 14. They replied, Some are saying that you're John the Baptist, who had been beheaded. Others say Elijah, who had been a prophet years before. Others still say that you're Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets, who had since been gone. What we see in this answer is that when people were around Jesus, they noticed that something was different about him. They noticed that he wasn't just a normal person. But the best that many could come up with, well, maybe he's some reincarnated prophet of God from the past come back to life. And then Jesus gets really personal as at one time or another in our lives, maybe today's that day, Jesus has gotten really personal with you. He asks the 12. But it doesn't matter what the others are saying. What about you? Who do you say I am? What do you believe about who I am? What is it that you think? Verse 16, I probably didn't need to tell you who answered first. It's always the same guy, for better or for worse. Peter, he always likes to be the center of attention. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, let's talk a little bit about that word Messiah. For most of you who have been regular church attenders, you've heard that word before, but I'm guessing a lot of you don't really know what it means. In the Greek, Messiah is the word Christos or Christ. Both of those words mean the anointed one, the chosen one. And in theory, those words could be used for anyone who was selected special or anointed. But all throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, when the word Messiah was used among Old Testament Israel, it wasn't referencing just a chosen one. It was always a reference to the coming Savior. They were always on the lookout for the Messiah, And generations came and generations died. And for years and years, the Messiah hadn't come. But now he was here on the planet. And Peter, after observing Jesus for those three years, getting to know him, and most importantly, as we'll see in a moment, through God's work in Peter's heart, he gave a great answer. He said, Jesus, here's who I believe you are. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior, promised thousands of years before, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
For this was not revealed to you. This answer was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, my Father in heaven. <laughs> Good job, Peter. Good answer for once. <laughs> okay? Verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So what, what happened for Peter? Like, did he need to be reminded what his name was? What's up with that first part? Jesus says, I tell you, you're Peter. And he's like, I know I'm Peter, Jesus. Well, many of you know what's really going on here. Peter wasn't always his name. In fact, the name that his parents gave him starts with an S. Anyone know it? Simon, exactly. Thanks, Al. Simon was his name. The answer that Peter gave that day was so important and so at the crux of everything that Jesus was about, who he was, was at the crux of it, that Jesus decided to commemorate that day by changing Simon's name to Peter. Which means stone or little rock or pebble. You know what it doesn't mean, Peter? It doesn't mean like Dwayne Johnson, the rock. Watch out what the rock is cooking, no. It doesn't mean big cliff. It doesn't mean strong, huge boulder. I would say it's probably more the usage of that phrase, you know, I won't say the whole phrase, but you know when you talk about a box of rocks, you know? That's the type of little stone, Petrus. Did you know that before this moment, from everything we can tell Greek linguists, Peter or Petrus was never used as a name? Because <laughs> it really wasn't a compliment. It wasn't something that people would think to call someone. But Jesus was using this as a play on words. Let's go back to verse 18. Says this, I tell you that you are Peter, Petrus, little stone, pebble. <laughs> and on this rock, different word, they're related but different. Petra, boulder, cliff, strong foundation. Not on you, Peter, little stone, but on this rock. Petra, what you just said, the statement you just made about who I am, on that statement, on that truth that I am the Messiah, I'm going to build my whole church. That's the core. That's the foundation of everything you guys are going to go out and do. Who I, Jesus, am. And so our second fill-in for today is this. Jesus is the foundation on which this church and on which the church is built. Now, this sounds good, and it sounds right, and for most of you, if I would have given you the, the, the sheet before you got in here this morning, or if you looked before we got here, I'm guessing that half of you could have filled that in, if not more. No surprise. Jesus is the foundation. What else you got, preacher? But what I want to share with you more is practically speaking what that means for us, individually and as a church. What does a ministry look like 
when Jesus is at the foundation, when he is the foundation, and I kind of referenced this earlier in the service, but where our journey starts is a humbling, difficult recognition that on our own, we don't get much right. That many days, and my wife might say most, I'm not a great husband. That when I think about my thoughts, that they often take me places of arrogance or of self-centeredness or of worldliness or of earthly success rather than heavenly glory. And I don't know the things that you struggle with, but what, here's what I do know. You can relate in your own way. That the way we look on the outside so often is just covering up for our own enjoyment or just making us feel better about a lot of things we know behind the scenes and inside are not the way we'd want them to be. We try hard and we don't get it right. And if you can relate to that, God has you exactly where he wants you. Because what it means that Jesus is the foundation of this church is a recognition that we need him, of daily habits that remind ourselves that we need forgiveness, that we need a savior. There's this passage that Paul writes in Romans that uh, is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And, you know, sometimes uh, pastors say that because it's just the passage that they're using that week. So they oh, this is one of my favorite, you know. Um, I'm not doing that today. This is one I go back to all the time because it encourages me. It says this, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. It's when we tried hard that Christ died for us. It's when we took a couple steps forward that Christ died for us. It's, it's when we got part of our life cleaned up that Christ decided to come down and die for us. It's while we were still sinners, while we were at our worst, when we were filthy and having no hope that Christ decided to come and die for the world and for you and for me as part of that world. Everything we do, everything we preach, everything we teach, every ministry that we have, every time we gather together, whether it's 100% verbalized or not, let me tell you, is that truth and this new identity that God gives to us as a gift through Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that transformation is at the heart of everything we do. And to be honest, if we read through the Bible and read its directives to us without this, you are going to feel loaded down by this big burden of not being able to add up every single time. If not, you don't, you're not thinking hard enough. 
Because without Christ, God's directions for us are a burden. But with him, it's this amazing opportunity to not get it right every time, as hard as we try, but to know that he still loves us and we get to use our lives as a thank offering to him. As I thought about the beginning, this new beginning at North Cross, there was two other quick things that I saw in verse 18 that just really encouraged me. I want to point them out to you. Same verse, this last verse, verse 18. Jesus said, again, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, this statement of who I am, on me, Jesus, I will build my church. That word in the Greek is ecclesia, and it does not mean building. It doesn't mean structure with a steeple or big cross. It's not building that inside of it, people gather, and there's an organ or a band or whatever. No, it's, it's none of that. What it means is an assembly, a gathering. What Jesus is promising is that he is going to build an assembly of people, a gathering of people. And this gathering is going to endure until the end of time, so much so that even the gates of hell itself, the devil himself, will not be able to overcome it. And 2,000 years later, look around you. You and I and this church, not the only church, but one of them, is the fulfillment to God's promise that an ecclesia, a gathering of Christ followers, will always endure. And isn't that cool? It gives me goosebumps to think I am part of, you are part of the fulfillment of God's promises. So much so that when the Christian church first started, there was so much against it, this ecclesia. Its first leaders were fishermen, a tax collector, and a couple poor tradesmen. They had no power, no influence, no money, and the leader of their movement died. The government that they were living under did everything they could to kill all Christians. 2,000 years later, the Roman Empire is long gone. And the ecclesia endures. Because God promised that it would. A couple other words in there real quick. Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church. I would say that a number of times over the last 10 years, um, I think we bought this property, I think, in 2010. Looking over here at, at Tim, who he and I worked on part of that part, and like, I don't know. This seems like a difficult road to hoe, financially and otherwise. <laughs> we might put the church in some difficult, you know, <laughs> situation, you know. And even now, you know, not every I is dotted and T is crossed. I mean, anytime you take out a mortgage, whether it be a family or a church, there's, there's some unknowns, right? There's a good plan, let me say that. But there's unknowns. Here's what I took out of this this week. 
it's not up to me to build the church. It's not up to you guys to build the church. Because 2,000 years ago, God promised, here's the foundation, it's my son Jesus, and he will build his church. Here's how I think about it. It's our third fill-in. So here's what we need to do. We give our best, and Jesus will do the rest. Let me say what I'm not saying. That doesn't mean that you just go through life oblivious to circumstances and not use your brain and not plan. No, you do all of that. But at that point where you begin to be stressed out and worried about the plan that you prayerfully considered, talked to smart people, looked over, thought through, when the worry comes up, remind yourself, in life or in church, it is not up to me. And we just give our best in life. Whether that be as a mom or a dad, a husband or a wife, a child, an employee, a employer, a pastor, a congregant. We give our best. And we trust for Jesus to do the rest. So here's your application for today. I want nothing more than for you to be a part of what the local church is doing in a big way. Beyond your immediate family that many of you are sitting next to, there is no other way to have a bigger impact in life than through your local church. I firmly believe that. Some of you are already involved. Some of you are just visiting and are involved in other churches. Great. You think about your church through this. Others of you have been sitting on the sidelines for a while, and now it's time to jump in. Here's the question. Ecclesia, how can I be a part of what Jesus is doing at and through North Cross? Maybe you've taken some time off for a while, and now it's time to jump back in. Maybe you need to figure out, you know, what are my options? It's time to give Pastor Ben a call. He'll figure it out for you together. But this is something that deserves your prayers and your thoughts this week. How can I be a part of what Jesus is doing at North Cross? And then come back next week as we continue building North Cross to learn more about who we are and the plan that God has for us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for all of the blessings that you have given to us. On a day like this, it's easy to be so focused in on the tangible physical blessings that we see around us. And yet, at the heart of all of this is your promise that a remnant would remain, that a large gathering, an assembly, an ecclesia will survive. And we thank you that you have guided your church to this day, that we are able to be a part of it, to be blessed by it, and to bless others through it. pray all this in Jesus, our Savior, the foundation's name. Amen. Amen.